0: Hello, and welcome to ADCES podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Joanne Rinker, the Director of Practice and Content Development at ADCES. Today, we're discussing something that so many of us are often asked about by our clients and other healthcare professionals. Fasting for religious purposes has been done for millennia, but non-religious fasting has become a very popular trend. As diabetes care and education specialists, it's important we understand how to help clients who choose to fast do so safely. In this episode, we speak with Barbara Eichhorst and Joy Pape, about the practical tips every healthcare professional should know when asked about fasting. Barbara and Joy, thank you so much for being here today. We are really excited to talk about intermittent fasting and practical tips to help individuals who choose to fast. To kick us off, uh, let's start with Barbara to share some brief professional experiences.
1: Thank you, Joanne, and thank you, uh, Joy, for joining um, me today to talk about intermittent fasting. My name is Barbara Eichors, and I'm a certified diabetes educator, no more. It's Mm -hmm. certified diabetes care and education specialist. I'm also a registered dietitian, and I have been involved in diabetes care for the last 20 years. And now I am involved with Kindred at Home in the role of uh, Associate Vice President of clinical and research, working with older adults at home health. And prior to that, I have been involved with conversation map tools and briefly work as a team member at, at that time, American Association of Diabetes Educators. Now it's Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. I'm in Chicago and primarily have experience of working with the local hospitals and diabetes care innovations.
0: Thank you, Barbara. Joy, can you tell us a little bit about your professional experience?
1: Sure. Thank you for
2: inviting us. I have been an RN, NP, CDE, now CDCES. And by the way, that's getting a lot easier to say and remember, at least for me, for a long time uh, in just about every setting. I specialize in diabetes, weight management, obesity, and foot care. At this time, I practice in New York City at Wild Cornell's Comprehensive Weight Control Center and with an endocrinologist and have my own private practice. I actually have been doing telehealth for about 20 years. Thank you, Joy.
0: So what I really want to know is how did you both get involved in this fasting education and research?
1: So for me, it started about 10 years ago. I was involved in the national and then later international program with the conversation map tools, where outside US, we started to do a conversation map that was dedicated to safe fasting during Ramadan. I was involved in the development of a curriculum. Then later, I got together with several physicians from Middle East and We did some studies and then some programs and interventions needed prior to actual Ramadan, like how to develop a curriculum, what to educate the patients on, how to do the risk assessment, and the role of a diabetes educator in the whole journey. So at that time, I was like this, let me just try the whole fasting myself. So I'm not a a Muslim, I'm a nice Catholic girl from Chicago, but Mm -hmm. I tried to do ramadan so for the last few years i have been doing ramadan not for the religious purposes but more so of a spiritual well-being and it's a great educational and i'm self-educating myself about the whole journey of fasting and what it does to your mind what it does to how you feel so about two years ago i was talking with joy and then joy was like no way i want to be involved you know because joy is working with weight management working with patients in New York who have been fasting, not necessarily for Ramadan, but doing a lot of intermittent fasting for other religious purposes. So we got together in 2018. We got also Lorena Drego involved in this whole discussion. And then Anna Norton, she's a CEO from Diabetes Sisters. And we got to do a national survey with Diabetes Sisters and kind of assess how are people with diabetes fasting and what are their needs about fasting, and how can we be of assistance to help those individuals to fast in a safe manner?
2: So, Barbara, I remember I'm laughing because I remember we were having this conversation. We were talking about our histories and that, and I can remember just where I was sitting. We were talking about fasting, and I said, you know, I was brought up Jewish, and yeah, I remember, of course, you know, since a child, they would fast for Yom Kippur. But what people don't talk about is the feasting. And you and I really like said, yeah, Yeah. we we always hear about fasting. So that that was a lot that got us started. And uh, that continues to be an interest to me. So it started out for me for religious purposes, not that I did it, but from a young child. And then what happened is I became a follower of Mahatma Gandhi's teaching and learned more of the spiritual and the health aspects. And then as I became a healthcare professional, I was fascinated about the circadian rhythm and timing of eating. So as a CDCES, I realized that the issue with diabetes was not all about the fasting. We didn't seem to talk about the feasting, as I had mentioned earlier.
0: So as you know, I had a very personal experience with a provider who was asking me a lot about the background of fasting. And of course, I reached out to you because I wanted to make sure that I had kind of that most current research, the most current evidence to have that intelligent conversation. And I know that other DCES will also run into this. So what can you tell us about why fasting is a topic that every diabetes care and education specialist should be informed in? And then what is that evidence that can
1: support that practice? My initial reaction is like, wow, Joanne, we're not the ones recommending it. Uh, So (laughs) so I'm like, I don't feel the need to justify it. But then later we started to talk about it. So the reality is that our patients are coming in to us um, as clinicians and asking for help. So we do need to know all of those things to justification and so on, and also to have that intelligent conversation with, that, with let's say, their physician or other providers who might be asking us for assistance on how to position it. So uh, reality is a lot of patients are fasting. I'm using an app right now, one of the apps that tracks people who fast, and it actually helps me with my fasting practices. And right now I'm looking at it, and it's 800,000 people are fasting, just on one, one app. So we're engaged in some form of fasting. So what is fasting? So fasting is usually a willful. You do it on purpose. You're framed from eating food for a period of time. So there is different stages of fasting, you know, 12 hours, as we know, we get into the ketosis state and then 18 hours, you get into the fat burning mode, 48 hours, like with my app, it tells me how many hours I want to fast and it would be, Hey, you did 12 hours. You're already into ketosis state. You hit 18 hours, you hit into the fat burning so 48 hours typically is where um and this could be a fast you know you're still drinking a little bit of water or consuming some little amount of calories but not enough to get you in a state of non-fasting so you get into the fasting you have the calorie deficiency so within like 48 hours we get into this where you Almost your growth hormones levels are a little bit higher. And some research indicate that you can get into five times higher with the growth hormones compared to when you started the fast before the 48 hours. And then 58 hours, That's you know, it's a long fast. This is where the insulin level is dropping to the lowest. And that's what the patients are reading and reading the benefits of it. So many of them are doing the 54-hour fast because of that benefit of of insulin dropping very low. And then 72 hours, which from my understanding is the longest one, this is where there is some evidence indicating that the immune cells supposed to be generating the new ones. There are some questions about the research, because when we look at the research, is it done on a mouse or is it done on a human being? So some of it, it's questionable, but the reason that I'm pointing this out to you is that's what our patients are reading. So those are the benefits that they're kind of seeing to fasting. It's either it's going to help them improve the blood glucose management. There is some evidence that it can reduce inflammation. It can improve blood pressure, triglycerides, cholesterol, You know lipids. Also, there are some people that are looking for the improvement in the brain function. And I got to tell you myself, when I'm fasting, like when I hit about 14 to 15 hours, it feels good. I like get clarity. I feel light. I feel very good with focusing. I want to do everything. I want to go exercise. I want to write. I want to mm-hmm. do everything, but I don't want to do when I'm not fasting. So it's a, it's a good state to be in. And then, of course, it aids in weight loss. And there is also some indication of the cancer in fasting. So those are the, the some of the benefits that the patients are hearing about. And that's kind of what led us to even start presenting and talking about intermittent fasting is because we really want to be prepared when the patient is telling us, I would like to fast, please help me. And what we have learned from our survey, from a national survey from Diabetes Sisters, is that one of the concerns that they had, and there was a big survey of over 200 participants, and a little bit over half of them have indicated fasting. They actually said that they come to the clinicians for help to help them to fast safe with diabetes, but they have not received that help. And it's because many clinicians do not even know what to do with those patients. And that's why they work with Joy and then Lorena and Anna.
0: So that's really important, Barbara. So then in that case, what is the role of the diabetes care and education specialist in sort of spreading the word about how to fast safely?
1: So I think that it would be part of our assessment. When we do an assessment on our patient with asking the patient in terms of why they choose to fast... Have they experienced fast before? How did it work? And then helping them to be safe when they're fasting. And safety would be, of course, related to hypoglycemia and symptom management. The survey from the diabetes sisters indicated that most of the reasons that people had to break the fast or they couldn't continue with the fast was hypoglycemia, feeling very nervous, or extreme hunger. So the, the patients who have diabetes, they have a different levels of their diabetes management and and risk. And Joy is going to talk about that in terms of like making sure that, you know, what is your A1C? What is your potential of getting a hypo? What medications you're on? So our role is to kind of look at all of those possible risks and address them. What we have done with the work with uh, IDF and our curriculum development for safe fasting before Ramadan, what we typically do is that education is happening about four to five weeks prior to Ramadan. So we assess the needs and we typically do like a one day or two of trial fast. So, you know, nobody who's doing Ramadan is just jumping to Ramadan and fasting immediately. They do practice. They practice a, a week before, maybe one day or two. They learn from that experience and so on. So with non-religious fasting you want to do the same thing you want to do a stepwise approach and then know how to break the fast when to break the fast and then later what to eat to break the fast to kind of create an environment that is really safe i gotta tell you when i started to do the fasting thing I actually gained weight. I gained like <laughs> 10 pounds. <laughs> and, and then because it's, even though I didn't eat and I was doing, you know, Ramadan, which means I didn't eat from 5 a.m. to like 8 p.m. So, but the problem was, that's how I was, I was breaking that fast. I wasn't breaking it in a way that it should be. I was binging. I was hungry. And <laughs> and then, you know, it really makes a big difference how you break the fast and how do you grow the, the food. And as a dietitian, I will tell you this, many people think that you have to, change the way that you eat when you're doing the fasting. The key is actually you can eat as healthy as you would be, like your your nutrition is as healthy as you would want to lose the weight, or if you would want to just have a cancer prevention or cardiovascular prevention. So it's still the same healthy foods that you're consuming is when you're consuming them and, you know, how slowly you're consuming them and then in an amount. Thank you, Barbara.
0: So this really now brings up Some questions for Joy. We really want to know what those major points are that the DCES should discuss when we're talking about fasting, but also what those complications are that might occur when
2: fasting. So we have this handout that we spoke about that's available at the ADCES uh, website. And so I would recommend, first of all, that all CDCESs are familiar with this. Have it on your desktop, download it, have it in your hand. Be familiar with this. And so then, you know, Barbara talked about people coming in earlier, giving themselves four to five weeks or however many weeks or three months before they want to practice the fast. And I can't say that I see that that happens very often. A lot of times they come in and they want to start. So I think one of the most important things we can think about or do is remember that diabetes management is about shared decision-making. But this doesn't include just the patient. It includes both of us. In other words, both of us need to be informed. I need to know why a patient wants to fast, and the patient needs to know if it is safe for them. And so, again, like I said, we both need to be informed. I think it's really important, too, that for, especially for people who are doing it for religious purposes, some people think that it's a sin or whatever word you want to call that to stop a fast. And it's good to know that in all religious laws about fasting, they are told that one can stop a fast for health purposes. So they're not doing anything wrong if they stop a fast. That's very important. So again, I ask them, why do they want to fast so I can understand that? Then what's important is in this handout is to look at page uh, six. A lot of people don't understand their risk category. And so we have here the four risk categories of fasting for people who have diabetes. And these risk categories are, you know, are you at high risk? Should you really be doing it if you're pregnant? Should you be fasting? No. If you have low glucose levels, well, it depends how often. But do you have hypoglycemia unawareness? And for time purposes, I can't go through and I won't go through all of this. But I think people need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of it. They need to be aware of it. Where do they fall in the risk category for this? You know, it's kind of funny when you think about telling someone or saying someone needs to know what type of diabetes they have, what type of medication they're taking, um, does it have the risk of hypoglycemia? Some people actually do not know this. And it's very important that they do know this as they're learning about the risks. So then what they need to know is we look at page four on this handout. And what are the four major potential complications when fasting? And that would be low glucose levels, a glucose level below target or less than 70. High glucose levels, a glucose level above target level or greater than 300. Diabetes ketoacidosis due to a lack of insulin, You know, people at type 1 are at increased risk for DKA, but we do understand that even people with type 2 can get DKA. And what some people don't understand is if you're not getting a certain amount of carbs per day, they shouldn't be taking SGLT2s. So it's very important to know what medications, and with that, for the DKA or for the low glucose, and that, you know, when do the medications hit them and what are they eating? And maybe we hold certain medications dehydration. That is another symptom and not just for glucose. You can have a higher glucose when you're dehydrated. But what about blood pressure? What about feeling dizzy? So those things are very, very important for patients to know. And again, because of lack of time, this needs to be taught of how to recognize, how to prevent, and how to treat these complications. Those are the big things to know. And as I mentioned before too, it is so important that it's okay to stop the fast. They're being given uh, permission for that.
0: Sounds good. Thank you, Joy. Mm-hmm. So once someone has ended the fast, what does their first meal look like? Is there anything our listeners should really know about that first meal?
1: So the first meal, you know, it's just interesting from a perspective, what I have learned from Ramadan fasting, from a religious fasting there are laws that they already have in place for like 2,000 years, you know? So it's break it up with uh, dates or there's this drink, which is almost like a like a carbonated lemonade. And it's like a traditional way of doing it. So with non-religious fasting, it's the same thing. You want to break it up with a, a very simple carbohydrate. So with the fruit, um, with something that is not very heavy, I used to break my fast with cheese and tomatoes, and that was not a good thing because cheese is very heavy on your system. You want to have something that is very quickly absorbed and digested, and it's not very hard on your stomach. And then very slowly, you eat the three dates, let's say, because it has 15 grams of carbohydrates and you drink your carbonated lemonade or whatever you want to drink, something like a, a juice, then rest a little bit. And then do your meal, a smaller meal. So you're still thinking the same way as you would, uh, like the remaining meal, you have one and then giving yourself another time, about two to three hours to eat something again. Don't eat all of your calories or uh, two thirds of your calories in that one sitting especially like with intermittent fasting when some people will set it up so they only have a four hours of a window to eat or six hours of a window to eat so the key is to divide those calories and with diabetes the important thing as joey said is you gotta break the fast and you know sometimes people would be like oh i don't want to break my fast because if i check my blood glucose it's against the law a religious law because they think that, um, you know, checking the blood glucose, the blood coming out, that's almost like eating, you know what I mean? So we also have to educate people. It's like, when they feel hypoglycemia or any symptoms to do that, the, the only way to know what's going on is for them to check the blood glucose. So they do have to be prepared to be checking more frequently. And I know Joy likes to use the continuous blood glucose monitoring, but in the patients who are taking it very seriously, we got to address the fact that it would require, you got to get to know your body because the symptoms when you fast are not the same symptoms that you're going to be getting when you're not fasting. So to recognize those kind of things.
2: And I'd like to add something that I had left off is yes, I, I recommend continuous uh, glucose monitoring. And I know not everybody has that. So if they don't have one to check glucose at least four times a day, at least every four hours, and if they have symptoms. But for those who do wear a CGM, it would be good to know how your body responds to the CGM because some people respond very well to a CGM and some people, um, their glucose and CGM do not match. So I recommend everybody have a meter that if the CGM is saying check a glucose or if you think your symptoms are not going with what the CGM is showing, do check glucose and trust that.
1: Exactly, and then with treatment of hypoglycemia, that's an important component as well because that will be part of the breaking the fast. If it's a religious fasting, like you know Ramadan, we're not allowed to drink at all. So, like typically, with somebody who is not Ramadan but just regular fasting for non-religious purposes, it's not going to break the fast if they're going to have something with you know twenty calories or fifteen grams of carbohydrates. So they can still be in the same state of a ketosis if they drink ten grams of carbohydrates. But blood glucose is going to get back to normal. So it's also going into those educational modes where you got to really figure out, you know, how they're going to be treating hypoglycemia and addressing all of those fears that they might have that can uh, result in very unsafe behavior with their blood glucose.
0: Thank you. And thank you both so much for being here today and for talking about such an important topic.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Huddle Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we heard from Barbara Eichhorst and Joy Pape on the importance of fasting in a safe and healthy way. When your clients ask you about fasting, it's important that you understand their goals and reasons for wanting to fast. Likewise, they should know the risk in entering a fast and how to prevent, identify, and treat complications. For religious-based fasting, they should understand that it is okay to break a fast when their health is at risk. Barbara and Joy were part of a larger team who created resources to help diabetes care and education specialists address fasting. Visit diabeteseducator.org fasting for additional information. Remember that membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org join. This information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.